0: Sometimes it's easier to identify what we're against rather than what we're for. Are we for things or are we just against things as God's people? And things change over time and things change in our lives and things change in culture and everything else. And like, okay, it's almost easier, quicker, more tempting to identify, oh, I'm against this, I'm against that. As opposed to what we are actually for as the people of Jesus. Uh, let's say you're going down the highway for years, you go by and there's this billboard and this billboard is always extolling the virtues of apple juice. And that's great, you love apple juice. Apple juice is great. It's healthy for you, it tastes good, everything else, but you notice a change over the years you realize that that sign actually changes and it starts to extol the virtues of orange juice, not apple juice. And in fact, not only does it extol the virtues of orange juice, but uh, has a little note there that if you like apple juice, you're, there's something wrong with you. And so this kind of bothers you because you like apple juice so much. But you start to notice that in the stores, there's less and less apple juice. And more and more people in your conversations start saying how if people like apple juice and not orange juice, they're bad. And you notice that that sign that was sponsored by the government. And so you write into the government expressing your concern. You love apple juice. How, How can people speak against it? It's so good and wonderful and healthy and all these wonderful things. And you get a letter back saying that actually, no, orange juice is better than apple juice. And what's wrong with you, you bad person? As you talk to people through time, something happens in you. You start to notice that instead of talking about how wonderful apple juice is, you start talking about how bad orange juice is. And you actually kind of forget your first love of apple juice. You start to start complaining about this other thing. Now, as I've been going along, starting this way, of course, uh, it's an illustration, and various people will probably plunk in different thoughts, ideas, causes, beliefs for apple juice or orange juice. But, of course, you know it is an illustration. And as the people of Christ, we need the reminder that we are for things. We are for good and godly things, and we need to remember that. Right, And over time, the Christian faith, the historic biblical Christian faith, has done so many good things for the world and for the people of the world. I'm going to provide you a list of some of those things. Historic Christianity has given value and worth to all people over the world because they are made in God's image. That sense that people have an inherent dignity and worth comes from biblical faith, Also encouraged global and local efforts beyond measure to reduce poverty. Launched innumerable campaigns to feed and clothe the poor. Given us modern hospitals, accessible medical care. All of this has flown from the Christian faith. Provided reading programs and education, making them readily accessible. Advanced the idea of democracy and accountable government. Fought against evils like violence and human trafficking. Encouraged love, reconciliation, justice among peoples. Made major contributions to the abolition of slavery. Provided foster and adoption care services for untold millions of children advanced greater dignity for women and children around the world, given rise to modern scientific inquiry, launched programs for the care of God's creation, inspired some of the most brilliant works of art, literature, and music the world has ever known, and all of this is in addition to the hope-saturated redemption offered in Jesus. That's a lot. But we sense that some things kind of shift in terms of the perception of Christianity. In their book, Good Faith, two researchers named David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons make this observation for, for many people who are kind of looking on the outside in, quote, Christianity feels like a long list of rules that matter to somebody else. Now there's a long list of reasons for even why that happens to be the case, right? You know, Christianity isn't the majority thing in our, in our culture anymore. And uh, sometimes I realize that, you know, Christianity gets misrepresented in the media, in the world, that happens. Um, And and again, that's a complicated story, but uh, kind of the Coles Notes version is if you want to make someone or something or an idea uh, kind of devalue it, here's what you do. And as soon as you start to recognize this pattern, you see it everywhere. You oversimplify the position to make it look dumb or bad. You oversimplify a view to make it look dumb or bad. So sometimes that happens. But at the same time, as Christians, we need to look in the mirror and say, okay, as I think about my true love, as I think about my faith, am I just focusing on what I'm against or all the good things that I am for? So would you rather be known for things that you are against or things you are for? Okay, so with that beginning in mind, uh, today we continue with our series called The Beginning is Nigh, right? This is a, a trip through First and Second Thessalonians, we're several Sundays uh, in, and so today here's what our approach is going to be. We're going to look at the text and what Paul says about our bodies and holiness, we're going to look at that. Second, we're going to ask what that makes him for and what it makes him against, and so we're going to use that as a bit of a test case. And then third, we're going to go a bit higher picture, and we're going to try to think through and develop a strategy to more readily identify things that we are for as opposed to just things that we are against in terms of our own faith. Okay, so we're going to begin at 1 Thessalonians 4. If you've got your Bible, you can open it up. I'm reading from the ESV translation. So last week, you recall, we jumped out of the series a bit because I talked about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And uh, But this week, we're back to 1 Thessalonians 4. But the section of text right before this, he was talking about being ready for the return of Jesus. So next week, we're really going to get into some of those juicy details uh, later in chapter 4. Uh, but last time, we looked at a posture of love and holiness. And so holiness is readiness. So we talked about that, and he expands on this idea of holiness today. Verse 1. Finally then, brothers, as uh, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, How you also, sorry, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. And so he's not just making up stuff; he's giving stuff to them through the Lord Jesus. Verse three: For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Pause. Okay, your sanctification. Now, uh, there's various places in Scripture where we are told what God's will is for us right? There's sometimes it's high level, sometimes it's more specific. This is one of those places. It's not the only place, but it's one of them. Your sanctification. So what does that mean? It means holiness. Sanctification means holiness. So as we've been talking about two weeks ago, uh, to be holy, it's not holier than thou or anything like that. It's about being set apart and distinct for a special godly purpose, right? Being set apart and distinct for a special godly purpose, right, as we seek to know, love, serve God, and glorify him as the hands and feet of Christ in the world. And we, and we need training to grow in holiness. And this is what Paul's going to get at. So uh, as well, also we talk about this kind of two kinds of holiness. There's a holiness that you are given in Christ. You are distinct as you stand before God because of your faith in Jesus. But there's also what uh, theologians call progressive sanctification. So we are growing or progressing in holiness as we seek to know him and follow him and grow in Christlikeness, right? So that's what we're trying to grow in. And that's what he's really talking about here. Um, Children in royal families have a life that's different than other kids, right? They're under the spotlight. Um, their parents are royalty. Uh, but they actually undergo this special training. You know, How do they represent the family? How do they act in public? Right? Because it all reflects on the family and as they grow they will be ambassadors of the family. And so we too have this training program as disciples of Jesus because we are in a different kind of royal family because our leader is the king of kings who is Jesus himself. And so we are growing in Christ-likeness. We are training in holiness. So having said that, Paul is going to zero in on one aspect of holiness. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, so pause. A couple of things here. So, uh, he's talking about one aspect of holiness, and he gets into sexual immorality. Now, in the word here, in Greek here, is not two words, as it is in English. It's one word. It's pornaya, where we get our English word Pornography. Um, but it's really much broader broader than that. It comes up a lot through the Bible. You can't miss this. This comes up time and time again. It comes up 25 times, this specific word, not to mention all the other words. And here's what the standard dictionary says about what this means. Generally, it means of every kind of extramarital, Unlawful, meaning unlawful according to the law of Moses, unlawful or unnatural sexual intercourse. And so this is a broad, broad sense of of an aspect of holiness that he's raising here. Now, why would Paul even write this? Why would he bring this up? Well, he writes to them them with all these details about stuff that they are currently struggling with, right? So sometimes he'll mention something, but if they're not struggling with it, he's not gonna go into it in detail because they've already got that under control, right? And so let's say that I'm... um, uh, away from the congregation for a couple of months, and I write a letter, because I hear some things about the congregation. And um, I, uh, you know, I, I care for you, and I, I want the best for you, as I, as I certainly do. But I write to you, in that letter, I talk about how you've got to stop punching each other in the face in the parking lot. Okay? So if a third party intercepted that letter and read that, what would they deduce? Well, the only reason I'm writing that is because there's a problem. People are getting into fisticuffs in the parking lot. And that's really awkward. So if that wasn't an issue, I wouldn't have written about it, right? But the fact that I'm writing tells you that this is a problem, right? So the Thessalonian church, that they're in Macedonia, the wider Greco-Roman culture, which is very sexually permissive. Everything goes, basically. So it's a kind of a mirror of our culture today. Obviously, there's differences, but... So this is an issue, right? And so the idea is like, hey, Uh, there's this kind of different sexual holiness that we live with our bodies, and and they're struggling with it, which is why he's writing to them uh, about it. Um, uh, Professor David Williams says, there is always pressure to conform the downward pull of society. And so one of the things that made Christianity unique then and now is a whole bunch of things, but one of them was this very specific holiness around our bodies and how we use them, and that was very different than the culture. Now before we move on, I need to identify that Um, one of the things that we miss is not only is this countercultural then and now, uh, but also that uh, this was a standard that was uh, to be upheld by men as well. Because in that Greco-Roman culture, quite often the men got a free pass, the women were held to this standard, and and men were kind of not treated the same. But it was like, no, 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 all of you, everyone needs to have this uh, ethic when it comes to your bodies. All right, continuing. Verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, which is the country they live in. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so here, he's commending them, the love thing, they're getting right, they're actually an example to other people. Then he says, okay, we need to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs. Why would he say that? Recall at the start of the series that the church in Thessalonica began in the midst of riots, there was a lot of problems. Paul had to flee town because of violence, threats to his own life. And so you get the sense here, okay, things need to calm down, we need to settle in, stop attracting so much attention to ourselves, do the work of ministry, don't milk it. Uh, Hard work is a Christian virtue, and then we bring together the end of verse 12. So this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Okay, so let's return to our approach today. Here was our trajectory. All right, so we're going to look at the text, what Paul says about bodies and holiness, which we've done. Uh, Then we're going to ask what makes him for that, not just against something. And we're using that as a bit of a test case. And then we're going to go even higher and develop a strategy to to more readily identify not just what we're against, but what we're for in terms of other beliefs, issues, or causes that might be important to us. So I hope this is a helpful strategy to us. Okay, so let's ask, what Paul's instructions about our bodies and holiness make him for and not just what he's against? So when you go through a passage like this, what you need to do is not just look at one text, but other things that Paul has said, because that reveals more about uh, his thinking on this. And so here's something by way of context we need to remember. In ancient Judaism, the temple in Jerusalem was considered to be the dwelling place of God, right? That's the place people went on pilgrimage three times a year. That's so important. That's where people went to worship and glorify and serve God is the temple in Jerusalem, absolutely. Now, we know from Psalm 103 and elsewhere that God's throne is in heaven and his kingdom rules over all, but the temple in Jerusalem was considered to be his earthly dwelling place. Now, when people start to follow Jesus, there's a revolutionary development that happens, right? All of a sudden, all this language starts to be used around the fact that we, as God's people, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies become the temple of God himself. And so, all of a sudden, the the geographical location of where people worship and serve God is changed because as the movement spreads all over the world with the message and mission of Jesus, all of a sudden it's not geographically as, as kind of situated in one location as many people thought before. So that is a massive shift in what is going on. So therefore, when we are to be holy and to be holy with our bodies as vessels of the Holy Spirit, what we do with those bodies which are supposed to be you know, a vessel of the Holy Spirit matters. We are a part of the body of Christ, and so what we do with our bodies should enable us to serve God as vessels of the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, I'm not gonna get into this too much more because there's really multiple, multiple layers of of kind of Paul's argument and Jesus' approach to our bodies and how we use them and everything else, but I'm simply doing this to highlight the fact that sometimes we come across passages, oh, don't do this, don't do that, but it's not just because Paul or Jesus or someone else is against something, it's because they are for something, In the case of Paul, he is for bodies being used as a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is for holiness. He is for spiritual integrity in the body of Christ. He is for dignified and healthy attitudes and relationships. He is for glorifying and serving God. He is for all of those things. Now, I'm going to move on from that argument there, so we're going to leave that. And uh, many of us have talked about that in various ways. But I will say to those people who have uh, struggled with uh, these types of things about holiness and their bodies and what they do, um, there is good news. In 1 John 1, we read this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, he forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So those things that we have done in the past, which may be unholy with respect to our bodies or maybe things that we are even engaged in now, uh, this does not condemn us before God. He, comes, he invites us to come to us uh, in, a, in a spirit of humility and repentance and to turn to him, and there is always new life in Christ. And so that's part of the great hope of the Christian faith. Okay, but from that, what we want to do is move on to our third objective. We want to develop a strategy. Okay, that's one little test case for that issue. But we want to move on from there to more readily identify what we're for and not just against other aspects, other beliefs, other issues. Okay, so there's three steps to this. And the first is this. Be confident that God's commands reflect his sovereignty, holiness, wisdom, love, goodness. This is an important building block as we think what we're for and not just what we're against. God's commands, who he is, what he teaches, they reflect some things. These are major attributes of God. His sovereignty, holiness, wisdom, love, and goodness. That is who God is. Those are major attributes. Therefore, his commands, his teachings are always going to reflect that. We might not be able to see it and understand sometimes how all these things fit together, but God never goes against his sovereignty, his holiness, his wisdom, his love, and his goodness. So let's say I've got a child, and my child is a toddler, and I love them, but this toddler wants to go out and play in the street. Play in the street, and it's busy traffic, and so when I grab my toddler, and I, and I take them to safety, and that toddler with the little toddler mind is like, dad doesn't want me to have fun. Dad, dad doesn't want me to do that. No, no. it's not that I don't want you to have fun. It's actually because I care for you that I'm doing that, right? And as the child grows in spiritual maturity, hopefully they will see that God actually did that not because he's against me, but because he is for me. Because God actually knows things that I don't know and I have to trust him. Now, as we grow, let's finish the application. As we grow up, we think, oh, we're, we're, we're older. We, uh, we can vote. We can drive a car. We know most things. We don't know most things. And so we are that toddler child. And so we, as we grow in spiritual maturity, we need to trust that God is actually sovereign. He is holy. He is wise. He is loving. He is good. And his commands and teachings reflect that, even if sometimes I can't totally understand how they fit together. Number two, know that you are an image bearer of that God. That God who is sovereign, holy, wise, loving, and good. You are an image bearer of that God. All people are made in the image of God. Right, Galatians, sorry, Genesis 1, And so we are an image bearer of him, so we have his image, but as we grow, we're thinking through, how can my beliefs and behaviors honor that God who is sovereign, holy, wise, loving, just? Now, we can't be sovereign, we're not almighty, but think of the other four attributes. Holy, wise, loving, good. We are seeking to be Christ-like in those ways. Holy, wise, loving, and good. So as I think through his commands and his teachings, I'm thinking, okay, how can my beliefs and my behaviors honor that God in whose image I am made? Third, and finally, as you think about beliefs, issues, or causes which are important to you, be clear about why you are for them as an image bearer of God himself. Why am I for these things? If God is those things, sovereign, holy, wise, you know, loving, good, and if I'm an image bearer of that God, and as I think through these different beliefs, ideas, and causes, why am I for them as I want to conform my thinking and behavior to that God? Okay? Now, I want to give you a little bit of a, bit of a test case, because this week I'm going to encourage you to think through some of these things uh, that are important to you. Let's think of the Ten Commandments, because a lot of, to a lot of people, these are a list of a bunch of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that right, specifically the last five, which say you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet, okay, don't, 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 so these are lists that according to Kinnaman and Lyons, some people feel are things that matter to somebody else, but no, these things also reflect the character and goodness of God, so let me just highlight how this is, this is evidence that God is for certain things, even though it's a list of don'ts, okay, So first, you shall not murder. Why? We shouldn't murder because our God is a life-giving God. Life itself reflects the character of goodness of God. Therefore, you shall not murder. Life itself reflects the character and goodness of God. We do not do things which transgress His character. Next, you shall not commit adultery. Why? We shouldn't commit adultery because, well, there's a whole host of reasons, and the Bible is full of them. But we shouldn't commit adultery because God is a God of loyalty and faithfulness. And therefore, we are called and summoned to be a people of loyalty and faithfulness in our relationships with our spouses, just as God is faithful and loyal to us. See how everything reflects the goodness and character of God. You shall not steal. Why? Well, we shouldn't steal from others because God is a God who provides And so our blessings reflect the character and goodness of God. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Not, not, not. Why not? Well, we shouldn't bear false witness against our neighbor because ours is a God of truth. He is a God of truth and wisdom to us. And so our words should reflect the character and goodness of God. Next, you shall not covet. Well, why not? We shouldn't pine after other people's things because God is a generous and satisfying God, and so our gratitude reflects the character and goodness of God of God. So that's an example of kind of working through that a little bit, seeing the character and goodness of God. And so this week, I simply encourage you to ponder some of those beliefs or issues or causes which are important to you, okay? And then try to articulate as you think through why you are for them as an image bearer of God. And as we go through this exercise, whether in yourself or your families, your devotionals, small groups, whatever it happens to be, I want to give a cautionary word, because when some people do this, they think, okay, what am I for? They oversimplify in a way that is unhelpful. I am for Jesus. Yeah, thanks, we all are, okay? Be specific in a way that is consistent with the teachings of Scripture. I am for love. Yeah, we all are, but how are you that in a way that is consistent with Scripture? I am for truth. Yeah, we all are. How are you for truth in a way that is consistent with the teachings of Scripture? I am for people. Yeah, we all are. So be specific and faithful to the teachings of Scripture. So as a final thought, I just want to show you an example of someone doing this. And I think that it's a really, uh, it's a really helpful um, example, and it's none other than Jesus himself. Okay? So Jesus demonstrates things, um, and he talks about things. He demonstrates his teachings with his life. And some people think, oh, Jesus was against a bunch of things. Well, he is. Or Jesus is for a bunch of things. Well, he is. But when you start to look for it, you see how often he articulated both things that he was against, but also the things that he was for. And he does so in a beautiful and a powerful way, uh, which is part of the reason why he's so captivating. And so the example is from uh, Luke 13. It's the narrow door, beginning of verse 22. Listen, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. Okay, so as you can tell in that story, Jesus is against things. Okay? He is against people who have a passing connection with him, thinking they're going to have a place in the kingdom. He is against that. What is he is for? He actually, he says to those people, depart from me, you workers of evil. And at the same time, he indicates what he is for. He is for people coming to him from east and west and north and south and reclining at his table. He is for people who have been, often been treated as if they are last, those people being first at his table. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, whether you like apple juice or orange juice, let's think about why we are for things rather than just against things. For the glory of God. Amen.